0: Welcome to this episode of When Science Makes History. This episode is entitled A Little Taste of Chemistry, and we'll begin with a little inquiry into food flavorings. From previous episodes, you may recall my favorite flavor to question or to poke fun at is blue raspberry. What even is a blue raspberry? I can't poke too much fun. My own personal vice is spice flavored gumdrops, which I'm quite sure are little globs of gelatinized glycerin with anything but natural flavoring. The flavor called Blue Raspberry initially appeared during the late 1950s in Cincinnati, Ohio as the gold metal company promoted two new flavors for their cotton candy, Purple Grape and Blue Raspberry. Eventually, those flavors caught on, and in the 1970s, the icy snow cone was offered in blue raspberry. That solid foothold into the food flavoring market helped it take off. Incidentally, blue was selected to separate it in color and flavor from the standard red color flavor palette composed of apple, cherry, cinnamon, watermelon, cranberry, and so on. Today, Blue Raspberry is seemingly in everything, from Jolly Ranchers to chewing gum to Twizzlers, Icy Pops, popsicles, Jell-O, and ice cream. Blue Raspberry has become rather ubiquitous to the point we no longer question it. We know what it tastes like, but also realize there is no such thing as a Blue Raspberry. Chemically, it's a combination of banana, cherry, and pineapple that our taste buds have interpreted as the unique flavor of Blue Raspberry. All of this discussion on food flavoring is to introduce the topic of this podcast, carbon-based chemistry. Well, not carbon and chemistry per se, but the synthesis of artificial ingredients brought about by advances in organic chemistry. You see, none of the countless synthetic flavorings we experience each day would have been possible without the work of Friedrich Wohler. Voller's offering to chemistry was his ability to synthesize compounds, which to that point had been impossible to make outside of a living organism. So stay tuned to this episode entitled A Little Taste of Chemistry on When Science Makes History. Well, here we are in year two, and I seem to be surviving the making of my own podcast contrary to my initial fears. When I listen to podcasts, I want to get as much content as possible in a short amount of time. Whether driving, painting a house, or mowing the lawn, I don't want to listen to 10 minutes of advertisers making money for the host. You will note this podcast is notably absent of advertisers and is fast-flowing in content. But there is one advertisement I need to make in my effort to highlight the host agency of this podcast, Anchor and Spotify. When it comes to making my own podcast, I have actually enjoyed the ease of using Anchor. They have made the podcast production side of things rather straightforward. They have everything you need, all in one place. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. In fact, Anchor was acquired by Spotify, and the two are now one under Spotify for Podcasters. It's everything you need to make a podcast, all in one place seriously. Best of all, Anchor is totally free. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started and make your own podcast with the help of Anchor. Welcome back to this episode entitled A Little Taste of Chemistry. Up until the time of Voler, there was a prevailing idea referred to as vitalism, which suggested that there was a fundamental difference between substances that were alive and those that were not, beyond merely being alive or not alive. Living substances were believed to possess a life force, and substances they produced were unique as they required the living organism to produce them. Hence, they were referred to as organic, meaning they required a living organism to produce and inorganic compounds which did not require an organism. We actually still use these terms in chemistry today to differentiate organic chemistry from inorganic chemistry. The definition of organic, however, has changed over time and we'll outline those differences in this podcast. See if this explanation is of any help. A leaf, which is living, can produce chlorophyll because it has the life force. Chlorophyll would therefore have been defined as organic based on that definition. A rock has no life, so the silicon dioxide that composes much of the chemical components of that rock would be inorganic. A vanilla bean produces a flavor called vanillin, which is present in the seed pods of that plant. This compound would also be considered organic as it came from the organism we call the vanilla tree. The vanillin is extracted from these beans and bottled as vanilla extract, which is where we derive the term extract. Similarly, lemon has compounds like limonene and citronella, classifying them as organic. Eugenol is the organic compound in cloves that gives it that pungent aroma and flavor, This organic compound is the ingredient that makes cloves what it is. We could even say it's the molecule that provides the essence of the clove spice. Without that molecule, there really is no clove, so it truly is the essence. So when these are extracted, they are often referred to as essential oils essential in that they provide the essence of that organism, not that they are mandatory or a must have. So, essential oils are also organic compounds as they are extracted from a living organism and bottled as the oil that provides the essence of that plant, fruit, flower, or spice. I think you get the picture. Chlorophyll, orange oil, lemon oil, clove oil, and vanilla are all organic as they come from a living organism. So, what does this have to do with our topic for this episode? Well, Friedrich Wohler showed the world that substances previously believed to only come from the living organism could be produced without the organism. He broke the idea of vitalism in an empirical manner, meaning that his work could be observed, tested, and repeated. Today, we refer to his work as the foundations of organic chemistry. Organic bears homage to the historical roots of vitalism, yet today we refer to organic chemistry as carbon-based chemistry. Voler has one of the strangest quotes recorded in the Annals of Science. In a letter to his scientific mentor, John Jacob Berzelius, he wrote, quote, I can make urea without the necessity of a kidney, or even of an animal, whether man or dog, end quote. An odd quote, to say the least. What he was proclaiming is that he was able to make a compound that by vitalism's standard should be organic without actually using the organism. In doing so, he upset the thinking that organic compounds only come from living organisms. What Voller did was to produce an organic compound without the organism and the world has never been the same. He not only opened a new branch of science we call organic chemistry, he introduced the idea of synthetic or man-made compounds. While many will hear the term organic chemistry and think of a complex course that pre-med students commiserate over, it is actually closer to our day-to-day existence than most realize. It must be stated, too, that organic chemistry and organic food, organic gardening, have nothing to do with each other. Voller's ability to essentially make a precursor molecule to urine without the organism's kidney was a big deal. It may not seem like much by today's standards, but this was revolutionary in the world of science. The term for making a molecule without the organism present is synthesis, where we get words like synthetic. If one could synthesize urea, what else could be synthesized? Well, today there is synthetic fertilizer, synthetic oil, synthetic fabric, synthetic flavoring, synthetic drugs, synthetic skin, synthetic perspiration, synthetic saliva, and even synthetic blood. It seems anything can be synthesized, meaning made from molecules in a laboratory, thereby bypassing natural means. An excellent example of organic synthesis would be vanilla. If you go to the local grocery store, you will likely notice two versions of the ever-useful vanilla flavor. You'll likely find a one-ounce bottle for about $5 alongside an eight-ounce bottle for about a dollar. This seems counterintuitive, what is really happening is the smaller volume at a higher price is an actual extract of the vanilla molecule from real vanilla beans using alcohol as the extracting agent. It's truly extracted or derived from the living organism. The lower price but higher-volume product is likely synthesized in a laboratory and has a slightly different name on the bottle. It will say something to the effect of imitation vanilla flavoring. It is synthetic vanilla, derived in the laboratory, so it cannot be referred to as an extraction or extract of vanilla. We encounter this in a host of our food experiences the packaging, will say, contains natural and artificial flavoring. We've actually become quite accustomed to cherry flavoring that doesn't really taste like cherries in the produce section. Interestingly, the taste of maraschino cherries and almonds share a compound called benzaldehyde. This sort of explains why amaretto and cherry flavorings are so similar banana flavoring in the candy section that doesn't really taste like bananas is accepted to our fruit palate and watermelon flavoring that really doesn't taste like watermelon is also something we just readily accept. Further, the coloring of these synthetic flavorings has been a point of research and intrigue for centuries. Association between food, taste and color has been occurring for millennia beginning with wine being colored by grape skins and alcohol being colored with burnt sugar to give it a caramel color. Food scientists recognize there are preferences and also limits to colors and food flavors. Clear sodas were a rage for a while, but when blue sodas came out that were flavored like normal cola, they literally couldn't give the product away. It seems we like our cola flavored as cola and colored caramel. We'll tolerate the novelty of clear, but not blue. Remember green Shrek ketchup? Anyhow, we digress, but the connection between food colors and flavors is a fascinating one. So, how does all this synthesizing work? As God was putting the universe together, all the Legos that were used can be found on the periodic table of the elements. These roughly 120 elements are the ingredients of the universe, so to speak. Apparently, one was a clear favorite. Carbon. Carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen are predominant elements in the grand scheme of living organisms. That is why planetary exploration focuses on water and carbon-based life forms. If those exist, there's a likelihood of life since living things require water and also contain carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen in their biological makeup. Of this list, carbon is a clear favorite. It is in all living organisms. So when early scientists believed living organisms were the only things capable of producing an organic compound, they weren't making this point out of ignorance. However, the quest for the Holy Grail was in making those compounds found in living things without the living organism. And this is where Friedrich Wohler comes in. In 1828, he provided the initial spark by mixing ammonia, an inorganic compound, with cyanic acid, another inorganic compound, and produced urea. Sort of a 1 plus 1 equals 2 in that he took an inorganic plus an inorganic and made an organic. It wasn't that he was setting out to make synthetic urine. It was sort of accidental, a serendipitous science mistake that led to a great discovery. This actually happens a lot in science. Urea is an important molecule. When we digest protein, say a nice steak, our bodies break down the proteins and use the fundamental amino acids to produce something new. In the process, nitrogen is produced, which needs to get out of the body. Our body produces ammonia to carry that nitrogen, and urea is the molecule used to export the ammonia out of the body. It's an efficient system to eliminate waste products. This is why, if you've ever worked around animals, the strong ammonia smell is noticeable in the manure pens. Again, we digress. Let's get back to urea. Urea is a precursor molecule, meaning it is a starting Lego, so to speak, for a host of other compounds. Per the American Chemical Society, roughly 220 million tons of urea are produced annually, with over 90% of it going into fertilizers. The rest is used to make plastics, skincare products, glues, and other items we use daily. When we come back, we'll look at Voller's urea discovery and what it has to do with blue raspberry flavoring. Hey listeners, I am back in the saddle per se. Thank you for your patience. These have been some very busy months with family obligations, educational obligations, and travel obligations, all of which were enjoyable but took me away from the podcast. Well, I am back. Hey, can I just say thank you for all the encouraging comments along the way? Much appreciated. Seriously. As you know, this podcast is simply a series of serendipitous intersections of science with history that I just have to tell somebody about. It's not intended to make me famous or wealthy, so you'll notice it's pretty streamlined, that doesn't mean, however, I am not open to suggestions, so please feel free to reach out to me by email at whensciencemakeshistory@gmail.com, at gmail.com, or follow me on Instagram at whensciencemakeshistory. And if you don't mind, go ahead and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcast. That is always appreciated. And as always, you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again for listening. Welcome back to this episode entitled A Little Taste of Chemistry, where we are investigating the breakthrough discovery of Friedrich Wohler, a 17th century chemist who introduced the concept of synthesizing compounds found within living organisms. Once Wohler discovered the synthesis of urea, the rest we say is history. Scientists took off looking to synthesize other substances necessary to chemistry. Oxalic acid synthesis, which is also attributed to Wohler, Acetic acid, the acid commonly referred to as vinegar, was synthesized in 1845. Citric acid was synthesized in 1919 using bread mold. These are just some examples of important precursor molecules that were being synthesized. Scorbic acid, known as vitamin C, was the first synthetic vitamin that went into commercial production in 1933. And the list goes on of substances synthetically derived, including many of which we ingest as food additives. To round out this episode and demonstrate the lengths science can go with synthesizing compounds, we turn to synthetic meat. It is all the rage as an alternative protein to beef, chicken, and pork. Our local burrito chains no longer have meat as the menu option, but now ask you to pick your protein—beef, chicken, brisket, or plant-based meat. The final link in this chain is to simply produce synthetic meat in the laboratory. If beef, for example, is simply cow muscle, and we realize cow muscle is made from proteins, carbs, water, and some fat, can we not simply make our own minus the cow? Sure. Earlier this year, the Food and Drug Administration approved Lab Grown Meat and Upside Foods, formerly Memphis Meats, is now encouraging us to meet the new meat on their website. You may be asking, what exactly is lab grown meat? Well, to answer that question, the following is offered by Bill Winders at Georgia Tech's Ivan Allen College of Liberal Arts. Quote, lab-grown meat is animal meat grown in labs using starter cells, a growth medium, and large controlled closed environments called bioreactors. Rather than using live animals to produce meat, scientists use carbohydrates and amino acids to make animal stem cells grow in the bioreactors. End quote. It is to be noted that these products are different than plant-based meats, which alter the protein structure of plant-based materials to produce a meat-like product. These are meat molecules, so to speak, without the meat machine, namely the cow, chicken, or pig. Come on, why mess with meat? I mean, why try to make something so natural like a nice steak in a laboratory? These questions have been present to science, whether it is producing ammonia, quinine, caffeine, vitamins, urea, or even meat. If synthetic meat can be produced in the animal bypass, there's a lot of positive aspects that can be realized. No animal husbandry is necessary, meaning less land is used to raise the animals, less food product needs to be put into the animals only to have them excreted as waste, which has to also be managed. There is less water required. There is less CO2 produced by the animals. There's less trauma to the animal from penned quarters to slaughtering, thereby diminishing the overall cruelty perceived or otherwise in raising factory animals. All in all, as weird as this seems to be buying a burger made in the laboratory, it is better by a variety of means. There is so much more control in the lab setting as to what goes into a synthetic beef patty than on the route from factory farm to table. There's a reduction in parasites, a reduction in the use of antibiotics in the animals, a reduction in the contaminants in the animal feed, and the list goes on. Mosa Meats, a synthetic meat company, seeks to reshape the food system by producing, quote, a cleaner, kinder way of making beef, end quote. While Believer Meats seeks to, quote, make it possible for all future generations to eat meat without harming animals or the environment, end quote. Currently, Singapore is the only location where these synthetic meats are being sold, but 2023 appears to be the year of the synthetic lab-grown meat following FDA approval. Now, please note, I am not necessarily endorsing these companies. I'm merely presenting the work these companies are doing based on the foundational work done by Friedrich Voller. It has come full circle, so to speak, where the question was if we could make products that were only found in living organisms to now we are looking to make the actual tissues of the organism itself. Fascinating. As we close out this episode, we circle back to Blue Raspberry. If scientists can control the inputs of the meat production cycle, we could actually add artificial or synthetic teriyaki flavoring to the lab-grown chicken meat to essentially make a synthetic chicken breast with teriyaki flavoring built in. Why add additional flavoring to the chicken post-production when it can be built into the actual meat framework? You could have garlic herb chicken, barbecue chicken, and why not blue raspberry chicken nuggets for the little ones with less refined palates? Of course, they would need to be colored blue and shaped like little chickens. It's a weird world we live in when it comes to our food, Just take inventory over the next day or so of foods that you ingest with synthetic flavoring, synthetic coloring, and which may be synthetic altogether. All thanks to the initial work of a guy who essentially made synthetic urine back in the 1800s. So there you have it. Artificial urine, blue raspberry snow cones, lab-grown meat, extracts and essential oils, and a little taste of organic chemistry on this episode of When Science Makes History. Thanks for listening.